there was only one Anne Merle. Uh, what a fascinating life. I, I, some of the most fascinating aspects of Anne's life began well before she was born. Uh, it began with her, her grandfather, Walter Snell, who played professional baseball. Did you know he was at one point Babe Ruth's catcher? But there was no money in baseball at the time, so he traded the big leagues for the Ivy League and uh, became a world expert botanist at Brown University. Anne walked in her grandfather's footsteps, attending Brown University, where she would study classics and would be deeply involved in the music program. And at one particular audition in 1960, Anne Snell caught the eye of Raymond Mahurl from across the room. And in Raymond's own words, I've got to get to know her. But her social calendar was so full, it took him weeks to get penciled in. Married four years later, what a couple the two of them were. Sometimes listening to them was like sitting with two world scholars, world experts, as they pondered and solved all the world's problems. Other times it was like a slapstick comedy routine. I remember on a recent anniversary I asked how long they had been married, and I think I think it was 59 years at that point. Raymond answered 59 years, and Anne responded, but it doesn't feel like a day over 80. <laughs> Anne and Raymond raised two great boys who in the latter years have helped to return the favor, serving so faithfully. You guys and your brides were always on her mind. She loved you. I don't know how often she said that, but she made it very clear to all of us. Now, she didn't love you as much as she loved her grandchildren. She talked about you all the time, Isabel and James and Madeline and Anson and Kieran and Simeon and Eden and Zephaniah. She talked about you all the time, and you were such a delight to her. Anne worked many different jobs in her life, mostly uh, related to the medical field. Her favorite, uh, undoubtedly, was chairing the board at Beaufort Memorial Hospital, where she earned the nickname the Iron Duchess. I don't have to explain that, do I? If, if she knew what she wanted, she knew what she needed to do to get it done, and she knew that you either needed to get to work or get out of the way so she could get it done. I knew her growing up. Anne could be a bit intimidating at times. Some might even go be so bold as to admit she could scare you a little bit at times. There was only one Anne Mahurl. That's not exactly true. There were, in a sense, two Anne Mahurls. There was this highly respected, tough-as-nails, iron duchess that so many of us knew and respected through her life. And then there was another Anne that we got to see in the last few years who became so delightfully sweet and tender as she fell more and more in love with the God who formed and fashioned and redeemed her. As we think about Anne this afternoon, she would be very upset with me if I talked too much about her. And I am still a little bit afraid of her, so I'm going to steer clear of it. What I want to focus on is the God who was and is Anne's hope in life and death. 
And to see that, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. That's printed in your bulletin. You're welcome to use the, the Bibles in your row. But listen to these great words. Romans 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God works all things. No caveat there. All things every molecule in existence for the good of those who love him. Now, isn't that incredibly comforting? It's a comfort, I think, for the Christian every day, but it's, it's especially comforting as we think about death. You see, most of us in life do not give proper attention to the reality of death. But death has a way of making us think about what matters in life. It reminds us life is very, very brief. Even Anne's 81 years, which by normal statistics is longer than the average lifespan, I think in the end it went by pretty quickly. And so events like this, as solemn and as difficult as they can be, are a great benefit if they cause you and me to think about the reality of death. That's why Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Ecclesiastes is saying it is good for things to cause us to think about the reality of death because one day there will be a funeral for you too. You and I can pretend that's not reality, but it will be one day. The purpose of this funeral is not for Anne. Where she is, there is no grief, but there is sorrow for us who are left behind, and so we need it. You, her, her family, her children, her grandchildren, her circle of friends, you are meant to benefit from the time of remembrance and the time of gospel celebration that happens at a funeral. When we read verse 28, that God works all things for good, it's not without context. The Apostle Paul is not just saying, I'm sure everything will work out in the end. He says, 
for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what Paul is doing in those last 12 verses of chapter 8 is fleshing out the purpose of God. And there's really two things we see there, grace and glory, grace and glory. And those are the two things I want to talk about today, grace and glory. So first, let's talk about grace. And I suspect that that when I speak of grace, some of us may think of a character trait of saying the right thing, doing the right thing at the right time, social graces. But actually, the way I'm using this is the way the Bible uses it, speaking of one of God's attributes, that he is full of grace. When Moses met with God in Exodus 34, God identified himself this way, saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's saying to Moses, here's what I want you to remember about me. I'm gracious, and you see my grace in the mercy, the forgiving of sins. Now, we do not think much of sin today. In fact, I I would assume outside of Christian circles, you probably don't hear that word all that often. In fact, I think it was Raymond that gave me a book a number of years ago. I may still need to give this back to you. I can't remember. Uh, By a psychologist, and the name of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. Uh, We've stopped using that word. We tend not to think of sin as a big deal, but that doesn't make sin not a big deal. You think back to the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve from dust, breathes life into them, gives them the whole world as their own, and then there's one rule, one thing that separates the creator from the creature. He says there's one rule. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, as is often the case when we are given rules, they become all the more tempting. Well, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit, right? No big deal. The dust of the earth justified the command of the living God in a cosmic act of rebellion. Undoubtedly, the holy angels watching covered their eyes in terror at the thought of these puny creatures committing such a treasonous act against such a glorious God. Sin is a huge deal with eternal consequences, and yet God identifies himself as a God who is willing to forgive sin. Now, we have to think for a moment, how can God do that? We might say, well, he's God. He can do anything he wants to do. Yes, but he is a holy God who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And so his own perfect character prohibits him from just sweeping sin under the rug, pretending it never happened. And so what that means is that if God did not intervene by his grace, our sin would plunge all of us into the depths of hell. It would bring us under eternal judgment. And so since ignoring sin was not an option, what did God do to show grace to a people who didn't deserve it? He lays our sin upon Jesus. That's what we read in Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. That's what we sang just a few moments ago. I don't know if you made that connection. In fact, I had never made that connection until yesterday. But what did we sing a few moments ago? When I think that God his son not sparing 
That's just Romans 8.32. Sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. You see, when, when we're speaking of grace, we're not talking about something that God has stockpiled in heaven that he can dish out to deserving people. Grace is not a thing, but a person. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who gladly went to the cross to bear our sins. You know, Anne would tell you that for many years she thought grace was a thing. It was a thing God gave you so you could do your part and earn your salvation. Ultimately, do enough to be righteous before God. I think, in a sense, we all naturally think that. You know, you go to funerals, you've been to this sort of funeral where, where it's all about the person. Well, Anne, she was just a great person. Well, wasn't she just great? And that's why she's in a better place today, because she was just great. Uh, sometimes we practice salvation by funeral. Anne would be the first to tell you that if she was relying on her own goodness, she would not be in a better place at all. Her hope rested in God's sovereign grace alone. We, so I, I had a, several great visits with her in the last couple of days before she, before she died, but the best of them was on, on the Friday uh, before she went to be with the Lord. She had been asleep all day. She woke up. I was there. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And, and she looked up at me. She had the, the um, BiPAP on. They had just taken it off. And, and she said, am I, am I going to die? And I said, only the Lord knows when, but yes. Is it well with your soul? She said two things. The first was, yes, it is, because I know my sins are forgiven by the grace of God. And that when I die, I'll be with him. That's the first thing she said. The second thing I'm going to tell you in a few minutes. Grace means that at the heart of the Christian life is not who we are or what we do for God, but what he did through Christ for us. In sending his son to pay the penalty we could not pay, to take what we deserve and then he gladly gives us everything that Jesus deserves. Do you know Romans calls us co-heirs with Christ? We don't do anything to earn it. If we could earn it, if it was a 99% grace, 1% works sort of proposition, that wouldn't be grace at all. It is all of grace. That's why Ephesians 2 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. Anne really began to grasp that late in life. And it was so much fun to watch. I had a front row seat. As God went from, in her mind and her perspective, a distant deity whom she needed to appease to a nearby heavenly father in whom she could delight. It, it produced profound changes in her over the last 
few years. And I want to share some of those changes because, as I said, I had a front row seat, and, and many of us in our congregation had a front row seat to just watch as great, God's grace worked in her life. We can talk about grace all day long, but it doesn't matter until it's an experience of the heart where it transforms the core of your being, and that's what we got to see in these last couple of years, and I want to share that with you. You know, Anne had always enjoyed the Bible. That's not surprising. She was a thinker and a reader studying classics in college, but over the last few years, what we saw was this lady who for so long had loved the history and the literature of the Bible now absolutely was ravished by the God of the Bible. It became personal to her. She had always valued church all her life. She was raised Roman Catholic. She spent many years at First Presbyterian in Beaufort. Now, in the latter years of her life, she didn't love the church less, but she began to absolutely adore him who is the head of the church, and she longed to live her life for him with his people. Not perfectly, but longingly. She'd always loved to sing. She loved music. She loved church music. But as she grew in Christ over these last few years, it became less about music and melody and more about the God whom she loved to praise. For Anne, as he increased in her eyes and she decreased, Christ became to her a bottomless spring of grace. And that grace became amazing in her eyes. You know, I used to joke with her, you know, Anne, you're such an encouragement because if God can save a stubborn Yankee, I think he can save anybody. Grace is the power of God to save. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to talk about is glory. Anne chose Isaiah 43, 1 to 6, which Pastor Walton read a moment ago. Verse 7, if we had kept going, verse 7 says that God says, I created you for my glory. I created you for the weighty, substantial enjoyment and delighting in who I am. You see, the, the Christian life is not static. God, when he brings grace into our lives, he brings into view his glory and what begins to happen is that we move from the fleeting pleasures of human earthly existence to the weight of glory that we find in heaven. That's the reason he shows us grace, not so that we can go sin and not feel guilty about it. He shows us grace to prepare us to behold him one day in all his glory. You know, Anne was excited about that. We talked about it in that last prolonged conversation, the last long conversation before she died. And then when she took her last breath on the fifth floor of Beaufort Memorial Hospital, the Jesus that she so longed for by faith became her very first sight in heaven. Isn't that an incredibly exciting thought? Could it get any better than that? Actually, I think it does. I think heaven is a world of ever-increasing joy as we begin to plunge the depths of the glory of God. One of the things that, that would happen in these last conversations with Anne, and I know it, one of the pictures that sort of floated around our church over the last few days was a picture of Anne um, 
in women's Bible study, and it's a picture just of pure delight. She loved studying the Word with these women. And one of the things, I'm going to assume it was y'all's experience in that Bible study, it was my experience as her pastor, she would find something in her Bible reading, and it would enthrall her. Not some obscure fact. You know, you can know all sorts of fun, obscure facts about the Bible and not know God at all. But she would find in her study of the God's word some nugget of his glory, and she would show it to me with almost childlike excitement. And I think every, every real Christian can relate to that. We know who God is. Maybe we've known him for years, but then we learn something new about him, and it takes our breath away. We're like a child, and it floods us with joy as we see with increasing clarity how glorious this God really is. This God whom we call our God really is. I do not know exactly what heaven will be like. But I do think heaven will be that experience of, did you see this? Raymond, did you see how great he is? Dawn, did you see this? I think it will be that for all eternity. You might think, well, how could that, that, that okay, for a day or two, sure, the, but the novelty is going to wear off. No, no, no. It will take all eternity to realize the glory of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It will never get old. It will never get boring. Every successive day in heaven will be better than the one before because we will behold the glory of King Jesus. Doesn't that vision of the glory of God utterly transform our sorrows and our grief and realign the purpose of our lives so that God's glory that we will behold with our eyes in that day becomes our great ambition today. It becomes our great delight today. That's why Paul could say there in Romans 8, and he is writing to the church that is being persecuted at Rome, and they were facing great hardship he could say, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can any of that stuff separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Don't feel sorry for us, dear ones. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, dear Christian, we suffer sorrow and bereavement in this world, but we are going to a land where sorrow and death are no more. And Christ himself in his radiant splendor has pledged to personally wipe away every tear from every eye. Friends and family, I, I said there were two things that Anne said to me in that last visit. The first was that she was ready, and I believe her. I think she could say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. There was a second thing, and I want you to take this to heart. She was sad because there were people that she wanted to talk to about the gospel, about the saving power of Jesus Christ. And that's not surprising. She was a fiercely loyal friend. And so not only did she long for heaven for herself, but she longed for heaven for those whom she loved so dearly. And she wanted others to know this Jesus who loved her so well. And I can tell you, those last interactions, it weighed upon her. 
that there were people whom she loved that did not yet know Christ. And she knew she wouldn't get an opportunity to speak with you before the Lord brought her home, and she made me promise that I would, and again, I'm still a bit scared of her, so I will oblige. And loved her people very much. And she wanted all of you to know that if you do not know Jesus Christ, you are not prepared for death. Now, some of us get the privilege of knowing roughly when death is coming. Others do not. And therefore, it is right and good that we always be prepared. Uh, Jesus Christ saves sinners, all kinds of sinners. There is no one in this room or on the face of this earth that is so good that his grace is not needed. And there is no one so bad that his grace cannot reach. He is really good at saving sinners. He has a long track record of doing so. If he can save a stubborn Yankee, your past history and your present struggles are no problem for him. And so, plead with you. In one sense, on behalf of Anne, in another sense, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, that you would repent and believe the gospel. That you would put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you too might know the grace that became Anne's great joy in her latter years and the glory that she's now enjoying would be yours to enjoy for all eternity. How do we do it? It is by grace alone, nothing that we do. We repent, we acknowledge, we cannot earn it. And we look to him who on the cross our burden gladly bearing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Take that to heart, dear friends. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I praise you. that this is a time of celebration. It is solemn, but indeed it is. It causes our souls to leap with joy because we think of our dear Anne and selfishly, if we had the choice, we would rather her be here with us. But like the Apostle Paul, it is better to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And so we rejoice for her. And we know it is nothing in her. And she would be the first to tell us this. It was nothing in her that earned that salvation. It was the free gift of God. Thank you, Christ, that upon the cross, you not only bore sins, but you bore Anne's sins so that when her eyelids closed in death, she could say, as we're about to sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. Father, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room would be able to say the same, that all of us, despite what our past may look like, despite how religious or irreligious we may consider ourselves to be, that we would look to you for grace, that we might forever with Anne, 
with all the saints, the angels and the heavenly hosts, behold your glory for all eternity. We ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord.